Trump needed more Democratic support, and he knew he wasn't going to get that support. So the way to fix this was that if you made the tax bill budget neutral, you didn't have to get the same level. You could pass, through reconciliation. You could pass it through reconciliation. Mm-hmm. So basically, the way to fix this was they just said, okay, we're going to make the tax changes, but we're going to say that in 2026, they expire. We just revert to the old tax code. Mm-hmm. So things that changed. We have lower tax brackets. We have bigger standard deductions. We have a qualified business income deduction for business owners. My personal favorite is the doubling of the child tax credit. So there's all of these things. Now, there this didn't impact people equally. People, one thing that was really different... Welcome to the Money Alchemist podcast. I'm your host, Ben Jones. And I'm Brent Gargano. Thanks for being here today. Brent, how was your weekend? It was great. It was great. We spent uh, some time. Weather has been awesome. We, after, what, a month and a half of snow and rain and clouds, we finally had, I don't know, at least three or four days now of, of sunshine. So actually got out and, and did some things outside for the the, the weather was un, is unexpectedly surprising for the season as the recent uh, jobs report on Friday. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's a fair way to characterize it. I think it was almost 60 degrees yesterday. Yeah. So. Yeah, so it was nice. Yeah, we got some uh, we got some outside time in. I actually took a walk for the first time in what feels like ages. Um, took my son over to a neighbor's house and did some uh, IT work for, for a neighbor in need. Um, so it's, it's when you are somewhat competent at computers, it's funny that like everybody calls you for IT assistance because they don't know who else to call because Microsoft doesn't have a 1-800 number. So you end up being the go-to guy uh, for everything. By the way, for, for anybody listening, I don't know anything about computers. <laughs> so if you have an issue, don't call me. Um, yeah, so it was overall a, a very good weekend, good um, good weather. Hope everybody listening also had a great weekend. Well, we've got an interesting topic today, um, kind of a, a hot, uh, what would you say, contentious topic, and we get it all the time. How many clients do you, or client calls, do you take every week where, you know, the client is wondering, Brent? Should I be in or out of the markets because so-and-so is going to be president or the the election is not swinging the way that I think it should go? Uh, how often are you fielding that question? I feel like I am a lot. Yeah, I, I think it's everybody likes to have opinions and they seem to like their opinions. And so whether it's one opinion or the other, I, I think one of the hard things in being an advisor is the market at the end of the day doesn't necessarily care about your politics. And so when you've got clients that are calling you that have valid or, or, or concerns that may be concerns in the political scheme or in the uh, broader population, it doesn't necessarily always mean that those concerns translate into their investment accounts. And so it's, it's, it's one of the more, I'll say contentious investment topics. Oh yeah, I think we're going to have a lot of fun today. So uh, interesting things uh, 
to, to um, consider that a lot of people may not realize is that the stock market does not care who pre- the president is. Uh, they literally don't care. Uh, it, in fact, it, when looking at the data, the, th- um, the best performance, uh, according to, um, uh, what's this data here? Let me see where the source is at, out at. Looks like it's, it's coming from Blue, Bloomberg and Gallup. The, S, the best performance in the S&P 500 occurs when there is a mixed or divided government. So, yeah. so when, when less, you less can actually happen, correct? Yeah. So markets actually prefer there to not be a political alignment. They 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 like it there to be political tension. Um, but I wanted before we dive into all that, the one thing that I wanted to st- uh, start this conversation out with is uh, th- is to bring up the the uh, Gallup poll uh, for what are the top issues uh, on the minds of voters today. Uh, on the economic front, there the economy in general is one. Uh, second is the high cost of living slash inflation. You know that's obviously been all over the news. Uh, third one, which is all the rage in the uh, finance space and fintwit, as they call it, uh, is the federal budget deficit. That's like half of the tweets that I read anymore are about uh, the federal budget. We'll talk about that go over some interesting statistics. And uh, on the non-economic side, we have uh, government, poor leadership. Has that ever been different? <laughs> I mean, honestly. Uh, and then they're unifying the country. Um, I feel I've been voting since uh, the, uh, what was it, Obama and who was he facing uh, first? It was uh, McCain, uh, not, not McCain, McCain uh, Mitt Romney. Yeah. So the no, actually no, uh, that was the first election that I was that I was engaged in. Uh, in reality, my dad sent me a mail-in b- v- a voting ballot when I was in college <laughs> for the for the Bush Gore election, and he and he mailed it to me. Said Ben, did you vote? And I said yes. I didn't. Sorry, Dad. <laughs> I just didn't care. I didn't mail it in. Uh, anyway, um, so but ever since that election, that first election, I was engaged in. It's all been about unity, you know, bringing the country together. And I just don't think to me, it just sounds like it's not possible because we're just too diverse. You know, we have too many different opinions, too many different uh, backgrounds, cultures. Uh, So this whole notion that we can unify the country, I've always found dubious. Uh, And then the third non-economic concern amongst voters right now is just democracy. I'm not sure what that means. I guess uh, they're afraid that democracy is compromised. Is that the Trump effect? I guess it must be. You know, what's ironic is we we do not we do not live in a democracy. It bothers me. Everybody's like the democracy is threatened. It's like, well, we don't have a democracy. We have a constitutional republic. It's a big difference. Uh, A a direct democracy would, would, would mean that all of our votes actually do go directly to the candidate. But that's not how it works. Our our. Uh, because our, of the electoral college. Correct. Yeah. So so for folks that say that our democracy is under threat, it's like, well, you know, maybe you should learn a little bit more about how elections work, because technically, you know, the democracy was under threat when the Constitution was written. Well, I think um, there are a number of people that would ar- argue the the case for or against popular votes versus the electoral college. Well, the, sp- the spirit of governance is democracy. I think that's what they're getting at. It's sure. like, you know, our, our governance is, you know election uh by the people through the people so i i totally get that but let's hit these uh economic concerns on the head like the economy in general 
Um, there is a, a, a lot of talk right now that we're, we're going, we're, we're imminently going into a recession. And I just don't see the evidence of that anecdotally. Um, yes, I see the, the, the data, the macro data, the Fed tightening, the quantitative uh, tightening uh, you know, processes that they're engaging in. I also see, you know, certain, you know, retail sales slowing down, uh, wage inflation slowing down. There is evidence that, um, you know, a recession could happen, but isn't it a guarantee the recession is eventually going to happen? Yeah. And historically speaking, they get, they, they've, they, they used to be much more frequent. Mm -hmm. And in, I was reading, a hundred years ago, recessions happened every couple of years. And in recent history, we've honestly averaged more like eight to 10 years in between, in between a recession. This last one in the middle of COVID was actually 12 years from the prior recession and the financial crisis. So to have one so soon after our last recession, now, maybe we could argue the two have some related elements to them, but it would be somewhat uncharacteristic of recent history. Now, on the other side of that, you haven't, at least in, in measurable history, we haven't had, so right now the yield, the, the, the bond yield curve is what's called inverted. So you get paid more to own a bond that is shorter term than you do for a longer term bond. So right now for like, if you had money and you could put it in a two year bond, you might get paid four and a half, five percent. Whereas in a 10 year bond, you might get paid 4%. Um, that's not normal. Normally you get paid more interest to hold, to be locked into this bond for a longer period of time. So you'd see a two year bond yield four and a 10 year bond yield five. Um, somehow we have to go from what's called an inverted yield curve where we are now to an unyielded, uninverted yield curve with that healthy yield curve that trends up and to the right that we were talking about. And his, in measured history, that has not happened without a coincident recession. Uh, yeah. Um, I read over the weekend that the U.S. Uh, bond yield curve has been inverted for a record period of time. I think it was something like 308 days. Don't quote me on that. Um, but it's definitely over 300 days. So something unique is happening with fixed in and fixed income markets right now. And I don't necessarily think that it is signaling a recession. What it's signaling to me is that there's a lot of currency, a lot of cash, a lot of liquidity, especially on uh, the balance sheets of financial institutions. And they just don't know where to park it. So they're just parking it at long duration bonds. Plus you're seeing the Fed, when the Fed uh, changes its target interest rate, they're, they're really only doing it at the short end of the curve because that's the only thing they can control are essentially money markets. And um, so that that's short term rates. And then to compound that, uh, most of the, not most, but a good portion of the treasury issuance uh, has been in uh, T-bills. Uh, so these are notes that are 12 months or uh, younger, so or, or shorter, sorry. Uh, so I think that, uh, you know, you're just seeing a huge amount of supply uh, come on the market uh, for short-term uh, short interest rates or short-term notes. And uh, the, 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 most of the demand, like what these major pension funds, 
which are huge consumers or purchasers of the uh, long-term debt because they need to control that. They need to control their um, their outflows, their risk profile. So, you know, they like the dependability of having something that's going to earn X amount of return for 10 years. Uh, so, you know, but when you don't have a lot of 10-year issuance, it's going to drive the yields down because there's more buyers uh, than there is supply. So I think there's a lot of chicanery going on uh, that that doesn't necessarily signal a recessionary uh, so so a recessionary uh, how do I say this it's not signaling a recession um, it's just it's wonky supply and demand mechanics you know what I'm saying so uh, I I don't personally look at the inverted yield curve and and look oh man that's a sign of a recession and I think that we could see the yield curve. Uh, pretty flat to inverted for a, a, a long period of time before any sort of recession. Now, don't, don't get me wrong, a recession is going to happen. Um, I don't believe it's going to be this year. Now, that is, I you cannot predict recessions. So nobody should take that as financial advice and get out of the markets just because, or get into the markets just because, oh, Ben Jones doesn't say there's going to be a recession. There absolutely could be. You, could, you cannot predict these things. But Right now, seeing what I'm seeing, looking at the data that I'm seeing, when I go to Costco on the weekends, when I go to First Watch, we went to a, just a local cafe yesterday for lunch, my family and I, and, you know, there was a wait. You know, there were, there were, the place was just packed at the gills. Families were coming and going. People were walking away. You know, you do not see that kind of behavior when money is tight. You know, so, you know, as people say, well, you know, it can happen suddenly. It's like, okay, yeah, well, I was around in 2009. I remember the recession. And that was a big, you know, that that was a big deal. And I remember the traffic being notably light, noticeably light and thinking, man, it got, I got into work real quick today. And that was before the market uh, started falling apart. So I think that, um, the consumer starts to pull back significantly before we see that reflected in uh, in the in, in the economic data, certainly, but also in in financial markets as well, especially with how quickly information travels these days. So anyway, I'm not seeing a pull a, a consumer that's pulling back. Um, in fact, I'm seeing a pretty pretty steady consumer, uh, and I also am not too concerned about the uh, about the yield curve signal, signaling a recession. What I am concerned about, uh, and this is also something on the minds of most voters today, is the U.S. fiscal uh, situation. So let's talk about that because I think that is definitely more interesting. And uh, there's some uh, sharp teeth on, on the on the data that we're looking at. Um, so before I dig into that, do you have any comments on that? Well, I, we've talked about it, you know, in in the past. I think. <clears throat> there are a lot of reasons to believe the economy there there's a lot of data that supports that the economy is is strong the question is what's going to happen in the future i don't see a lot i mean between all of the people that are out there shopping for homes that have high amounts of home equity um markets at all times highs I don't see the right conditions to set up for even if we had a recession, not like a severe recession. Now, that's not to say, I mean, they're always in in investing. There's this belief that 
what's out there today is what's going to drive the stock market to go down. So if you asked me today, uh, what, what do I think is going to happen with the stock market? I could list a lot of bad things that are going on with the stock market. Generally speaking, the next leg lower of the market isn't created by something that you know about today. It's, it's something that you don't know about yet that you're going to find tomorrow. Um, and so I think that there's, you always have to in, in any, in personal finance in general, you always have to leave room for error. So I, I, I certainly wouldn't build a portfolio or hinge a financial plan on the notion that the re, there's not going to be a recession this year or that it's not going to be a deep recession. But I, I think from looking at the data that we're getting and looking at things like the average amount of home equity in the U.S. that we talked about last time, yep. it it seems like it'd be hard to find a really deep recession outside of some out of left field thing that we're not talking about. Well, we're not, we're certainly not getting in a, on the unemployment data. Um, the, the economy in the fourth quarter last year grew by 3.3%. I see a lot of, you know, pundits say, well, that's because of government and healthcare jobs, you know, or government and healthcare uh, spending. It's like, well, that counts, you know? <laughs> so it's like saying, I, I don't know what it would be a good analogy. Like it's like going to the grocery store and buying uh, come or go, let's go to Costco. Cause I spend money at Costco. So let's say I go, my wife send, sends me to Costco and I come back and spend $300. And then my wife's like, well, you spent $300. Why'd you do that? And I'm like, yeah, but the, but the, uh, you know, the gadgets, the TV I got was only two, was 250 of that. <laughs> it's like, well, you still spent $300. So it counts, you know, all, all of it counts. Um, so, you know, us, us economy, fourth quarter accelerated a bit, you know, grew by an annualized rate of 3.3%. And then, you know, GDP growth last year was two and a half percent. So uh, definitely not recessionary. I don't see that uh, turn around this year, you know, and and that segues into kind of our 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 election forecast. I personally am not predicting any major changes in Washington. I know there's a lot of talk about it. We've got you know everybody talking about Trump versus Biden right now. Uh, candidly, I'm just a little exhausted from 2020 still, <laughs> so I'm not super invested in in either personality. Uh, but I think from an economic standpoint, it really doesn't matter. You know, uh, uh, you know, I know a lot of folks are, are probably disagree with me on that. But if you look at the data um, for, you know, how the market has performed uh, based on each president, um, you know, actually, the, the stock market under Trump and the stock market under Biden are remarkably similar when you look at uh uh, the S and P 500 returns from uh, the election day to about a little over their 700th day, uh, both are positive uh, pro between between like 30 and uh, 40 percent on a cumulative um, uh, performance scale. Here, this is data according to Haver and Invesco, uh, of, of course. Here, uh, but going back even further, looking at uh, different uh, presidents. Um, most president through most presidential cycles uh, since looks like JFK here, we've had positive performance in the S&P 500. Granted, you know, you're looking at four to eight year cycles. So most four to eight year periods, U.S. markets are positive. Uh, so that doesn't surprise me at all. Um, the presidents that had the highest volatility, amounts of volatility, again, this is data according to Haver and Invesco, 
uh, are Richard Nixon, uh, Ronald Reagan, and George Bush. Coincidentally, all Republican presidents <laughs> had the most volatile uh, stock markets during their uh, during their their presidency. You're talking George Bush Senior. Uh, no, yeah, a junior, uh, George, but George W. Bush, he was, he, he presided during the, the great financial crisis. He had one of the worst markets for his Oh yeah, presidency. for sure. He, yeah. He inherited the market at pretty close to an all time high and then had the GFC. So it's another thing about these presidents. They all inherit circumstances that they do not control. And, and, and so it's kind of silly to put all these presidents on equal footing and compare like, well, you know, the stock market was great under Reagan and it was terrible under, uh, you know, I don't know who else you would say Carter. It's like, well, they, they all inherited different starting periods and different ending periods. So I, I don't, well, they don't inherit well, the ending period. And to further that, yeah. there are things that happen along the way that are outside of their control. So like, for example, yeah. I have a, an investing deck that I've presented in, in, in situations like uh, investing basics. So I talked to my students about this, for example, if you look from the beginning of Trump's presence, if you, if you look at the energy sector, okay, so we're talking about oil and gas energy companies, and we're looking from the beginning of Trump's presidency in 2017 to the end of Trump's presidency in 2021, what do you think the performance of the broader energy index was over that time? Remember, this was the guy that said that we want to unleash the power of American energy. Energy stocks. Yeah, they were down. Down 42%. Okay. <laughs> Let's see how that worked. <laughs> now, now yeah. flip the page over one more time. Now we have Biden in presidency. Yeah. Of course, we want we have a, a, a green energy deal, all of these other things to um, do away with the oil and gas sector. What do you think the performance has been of the energy sector since Biden's gotten in office? It's, it's over 200 percent. Uh, it's up 150%. So okay. you're a little optimistic. But, yeah. you know, if I gave you if if you had a time machine and could go back to 2016, when Trump got into presidency, and I and I had, I could say, would you rather buy energy stocks during Trump's presidency, or, you know, technology stocks, I, I, I think there were lots of people. I mean, I know, for me, when I was I, I was I was working at, at Fidelity at the time. And the Client questions that we got were related around buying. I mean, people wanted to buy defense stocks and energy stocks, things that they thought Trump was going to put a lot of money into. And I'll I'll take this one step further and say COVID was in the middle of Trump's presidency. Oil went negative. Uh, so again, it's it's it, 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 some of these things are outside of the control of the president. Yeah, a lot of things are. I I personally. Don't think that the American electorate has a good understanding for what they should value or, or what, what they should think is so important during these election cycles. What I think is most relevant in this election cycle isn't who is going to be president. That I think that culturally matters a lot. People tend to uh, put a lot of emphasis on culture uh, more so than economics. Do you agree with that? You know, that's why, like, you were before this podcast, we we're talking about the the phenomenon that is Taylor Swift and and how people are literally taking out credit card debt to to pay for thousand dollar tickets 
and how much, how like, that is just insane. You know, why would you do that? Why wouldn't you, I, it would, this would be stupid to take out credit card debt to invest in the S&P 500, but I'd rather you do that. I'd rather you do that than go and buy. But that, that just goes to show you how much more important people think culture is than economics, which is, as a financial advisor, that drives me insane. Well, pe- <laughs> but, people, but, people value short-term pleasure more than they dislike the idea of long-term pain. Yeah. And, and those two things, you know, kind of being weighed out in our brain as we're trying to make spending decisions, like. Yeah. And I guess what they, what they, when it comes to these elections and why people get so tied up into them, like emotionally and, and to the point where they, if they are disappointed that their team did not win, that they are going to cash in all their chips and, and just not invest, which is crazy because that, that means that you're probably going to miss out on a lot of economic progress as a result. Um, fortunately, then thank God for this, our economy is not dependent on one individual or even one individual and their administration. It's our economy is so much larger than that. Um, there's no uh, single party that has or individual that has unilateral control over our economics. Um, but but people. I think tend not, and I'm generalizing grossly here. Uh, there's a lot of folks out there that that tend uh, to think that that is the case, and they make investment decisions based on that, um, or they they hold off on investment decisions because of that. And I think because they just get so culturally intertwined in their in their political affiliation, which is nothing more than like a well, I shouldn't say nothing more. It probably is a little bit more than just a football team, you know, like. We all cheer for the Bengals here in Cincinnati. I I personally don't really care. I'm not much of a, a sports aficionado, but I get why people love sports and they get so emotionally engaged in it. Even though it's like, why? You know, where where is the relationship? What does that do for you? And I think a lot of folks they tend to get emotionally intertwined with their uh, their with political victories. Well, like I don't think that's fair because I think that politics you know, more so than football. I mean, football is entertainment and I think mm-hmm. everybody likes, you know, if their team winning, win, it wins and, and whatnot, but the government has, they do have a direct, a direct impact on your life. I, I think culturally people care a lot about the freedoms they feel that they have and the way that they're perceived in the society that they live. And, and so I think those things impact them on a day-to-day basis. I think there's good reason that people feel passionately about politics. But on the other side of that, no matter one way or another, how you feel about politics, you still go buy your iPhone or buy, I mean, there are some people that make spending decisions with politics in mind, but on the whole, we are a society of consumers. Yeah. And the, the, the political environment really to the, the market matters from the standpoint of how you feel you're going to change your consumption. And, and a lot of times, whether or not one person's in, you know, the presidency or not may impact how you feel about politics and how confident you feel in in the economy. But 
the market only cares about the exist to the extent that you're going to tighten your belt and stop spending money. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's the problem with right now is we have a lot of people that are saying, I, I'm upset about the inflation and I'm upset about whatever the X, Y, Z thing that's going on today. But the truth is they're still spending money. Yes. And I project they will continue to spend money. And if, in fact, their political party does not have a victory this uh, November, they'll probably engage in um, retail therapy and spend it even more. <laughs> That's my theory. I, I, I don't mean to th- I don't mean to suggest that um, politics and sports are on equal footing. I do agree with your statement that uh, that politics do matter, but they matter much more culturally than they do economically. Um, and I, you know, freedom the, uh, matters to me uh, as well. I guess my point there is, well, you know, freedoms have been trampled on and uh, opened up under either political party. So it's just like, which flavor of freedom do you want? So I guess when it comes to the the, the larger uh, conversation of, okay, what political party should you vote for if you value freedom? It's like, well, neither and both. <laughs> it's like, it's, you know, uh, it depends. Uh, but I don't want to get into that because that's that that is not my um, area of expertise, uh, and that is uh, it really doesn't matter when it comes to your uh, investment thesis. But, but let's but, talk about what's at stake here. Yes. Okay. So yeah. I, I, I ahead of time I went ahead and and put together some charts, and I, what what we wanted to this to demonstrate was the power of why you need to be invested through different market cycles and why it's important to stay invested. So we actually ran two scenarios. Um, So I'll I'll present them one at a time. So scenario one, we basically have, so I'm going to paint the picture here. It's 2007, right before the great financial crisis. You're 35 years old. You've managed to save $250,000 towards your future retirement or whatever, and you're on track to continue to save $40,000 adjusted for inflation every year per year. So the question is, one, should I save that in cash or two, should I invest it? So what, what I try to do with this is really lay out the the dichotomy of that decision. On one hand, you have somebody that's got all of that money saved and all of the money that they're bringing in, they're continuing to save it as cash. Person two is taking all of that money they're saving and, and, and putting it all in the stock market. And because of the future, we happen to now know what was the future. We know that starting in 2007, you were getting ready to go into the, the great financial crisis of 2008. So let's talk about what happened with those two people. So the person sitting in cash in 2009 has managed to save 370 plus thousand dollars of cash. The person that was invested after having saved $40,000 a year for two years has less money than when they started. They've got 244,000 or so left. If we now extrapolate that out, so from 2008 or 2009 all the way to 2023, the person that's been saving cash along the way, they've done great. They've managed to have a million dollars. They're now a millionaire almost 20 years later. But the person that stayed invested is almost $4 million. Okay, so when we talk about the amount of money 
the bit, the difference here, it's not a small bit. Now here's the challenge. Two years in, you're dealing with pretty big losses. I mean, this person in in our scenario has lost what a hundred thousand dollars. Let's t- let's talk a little bit about the state of the state of mind that that investor was in. Um, what was happening in two thousand nine? I was a homeowner during that period, and it was brutal. Um, you knew one out of every, I'd say, five people at least were unemployed. Um, many of which were in your family. So you're thinking, oh man, this is terrible. The media was talking about uh, how this was going to devolve into the next uh, Great Depression. Um, things were dire, man. It was it was bad. So to be in that state of mind and have your portfolio down $100,000, which you started at, what was it? Uh, 250. 250. Um, you had to have iron hands to to not give in emotionally this, and, and politically too you know that remember the, the 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 hope and change uh campaign and um you know it came and went and there wasn't a lot of change <laughs> and the hope kind of floated away uh you know so you know but there were a lot of folks that were politically ostracized uh, during that time frame, but that's always the case. You know, you've got you know forty five percent to fifty percent that vote one way and the other vote the other way. So imagine if you were like not a, a a political fan of the administration at that time, and the economy was not doing great. Unemployment was terrible. The housing market was terrible, and your portfolio was terrible. And you went to your financial advisor, and they said, "I'll just hang in there." <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, yeah. this would have been. I mean, that's that's kind of the point that I'm I'm making here, which is to to hold on. I mean, to be a good investor, mm-hmm. quote unquote, good investor over time, you need to be able to hang on to your investments. Like you have to be able to when things look miserable, and we'll talk about another scenario here in a second where it looks maybe even a little bit more dire, where you're not saving money and you're actually living off of the money. But yeah, you've got to be able to sit there and afford to hold it when you're down that kind of money. And that and and that affordability, there's kind of two elements of that. There's the emotional side, because I don't know about you, but once clients watch their balance go down for a year, year and a half, two years, I mean, that gets fairly, def- you feel kind of defeated yeah. in that moment. There is a level of capitulation that you're kind of fighting, right? So there, there's the emotional side. You know, you could you could sell out because you don't want to invest anymore, mm-hmm. or you could sell out because you need the money. Like you said, one out of five people that you knew was unemployed or whatever the statistic was. That's why, I mean, this, this scenario is a little hyperbolic, almost intentionally, because the truth is you do need some cash to keep you from having to sell out if you have a job loss or you get become disabled or there's an unexpected whatever it might be that comes up. But you also need investments. Um, so your job or our job as advisors is to work with clients to understand how comfortable are they emotionally with this volatility and how situationally well prepared are they 
to take, you know, to, to, to not only hang on because they say they know they shouldn't sell out, but to hang on because they can actually afford to hang on. Well, you know, cause again, we're, we're tied back into, to elections. And, uh, that's why I brought up in that 2009 scenario, why someone might be, uh, you know, emotionally compromised from a, a political affiliation standpoint. Um, none of this stuff matters. It doesn't, you know, it, in the, in the economic grand scheme, what matters as as you said earlier, is we are a nation of consumers, what matters is, are you going to continue to go to the store and buy? Are you going to continue to show up to a job and work? Are you going to continue to improve your quality of life? Is the incentive there to do that? I think everybody who wakes up in the morning, most normal people wake up and say, you know what, today is going to be a better day. Maybe they don't say that to themselves literally, but they, they go and they get their coffee in the morning. They make their breakfast. They make their day a little bit better than it was yesterday. We're all incentivized to do that. And, you know, if the opposite were true, then, yeah, I think a deflationary collapse could be upon us. But the way our, our fiscal um, uh, incentives are, are, are aligned and our economic incentives are aligned, you know, it, it promotes this inflationary type of uh, situation. All the stock market is, is just a manifestation of that. You know, we, you know, we have the ability to invest in companies that profit from our consumer appetites and, and they grow their earnings. And, um, you know, the, the odds of that reversing course over long periods of time, uh, it would be contrary to human behavior, I think. Um, so for you to bet against markets because of, Either we're we're in a we're we're in a downtrend economically speaking, um, which tend to be short term, or because of some form of election cycle that doesn't seem to be uh, going the way that you personally prefer it, uh, does not mean that uh, we're going to all of a sudden change human behavior. You know, human behavior has been the same as it is today for you know tens of thousands of years. And I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. So back to your scenario uh, that you were pointing out, uh, what was the alternative for the one one that was withdrawing from their portfolio? What did that look like? Well, so I took, I kind of took the reflection of that. So in scenario one, we had somebody that was starting with 250,000 a year, saving $40,000 a year. If they stayed invested in, they, they would have ended up with roughly $4 million. Now I'm taking the $4 million and we're going to start in 2007 with a $4 million balance. And we're going to start withdrawing $200,000 a year. So what I want to simulate here is somebody who's actually retired. The common objection that we get here is, well, I'm retired. I can't take the risk. I'm too old to invest in the stock market. Exactly. (laughs) And so this is a fairly, I mean, this is a $4 million account. We're taking $200,000 a year out of the account adjusted for inflation. So the 200,000 actually now, almost 20 years later is almost $300,000 a year. That's, that's coming out. Um, this this feels I mean, you can kind of wince as I say this, but g- imagine you retired in 2007. You had four million dollars. You're fully invested. You trust the stock market. You've been invested over long periods of time. You start living out of your money. And two years later, in 2009, you now have instead of four million dollars, you have one point six million dollars. OK, and. 
we're always comparing this to what if you hadn't been invested. So for some comparison, had you been living out of this $4 million and, and, and not been invested, you'd still have $3.4 million left. So instead of having 3.4 million, you have 1.6 million. And as you mentioned, think about what was going on at that time. I mean, you're talking about the collapse of the banking system. Yeah. Real estate. I mean, this was messy. The, the, the guts the that da- it took. The Dow fell 10% in one day. Yeah. And the guts that it takes yeah. to stay invested as a retiree and live $200,000 a year out of now your $1.6 million portfolio, which by the way, doesn't sound healthy from the advisor's perspective. I mean, yeah. $200,000 a year coming out of a $1.6 million portfolio is a lot of money. Yeah. It took basically, I don't know, to get your $4 million back. It took until 2017. Yeah. But you eventually did do it. Had you not been invested. And that's with the withdrawals, by the way. And that's with the withdrawals, right. So you would have, your balance would have crossed back above $4 million almost 10 years later after having withdrawn $2 million. Yeah. And- Fast forward to the end of 2023, you would have about five and a half million dollars mm-hmm. left in the portfolio compared to had you not been invested, you would have ran out a year and a half ago. So again, and 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 this span I picked on purpose for a couple of reasons. One, you were heading into the biggest financial crisis of anybody living's right right now's life. Right. This was this was a year before the 2008-2009 crisis where I chose as a starting point. You also span one, two, three, four different presidents, two Republicans, two Democrats. You span one, two, three, four, 20 percent plus drawdowns in the stock market. You have geopolitical problems, wars in the Middle East collapse of of countries in Europe the Greece Greece Greek crisis you had Puerto Rico default on their debt in here you had North Korea shooting nukes at people you had Russia invade Ukraine you had a global pandemic I know those two are when out did of North order. Korea shoot a nuke Oh, 2018. You don't remember the news and 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 Kim Jong Un was shooting nukes into the middle of the ocean, and I mean the whole world was on edge, thinking that this guy might. I didn't know he activated nukes. Like he actually had nuclear weapons tests. Like that. Yeah, man, I missed that. Really <laughs> whiz. Go, you, you go fact check me, but yeah. Um, but the point the point is, there's a lot of ugly stuff. Yeah, well, like you had the you had the the complete the global spanning panic. That was 2020. You have this span yeah. when we actually break it down to go from 2007 to 2023 in markets. Mm-hmm. The amount of slop that you have to trudge through between geopolitical issues, political issues, economic issues. It's it's a lot. And the market still managed to, to, to innovate grind higher, to innovate, to grow uh, th- think about the tech, the, the technological innovations we've had over that period of time. You know, it, people forget about that. We we are all um, we're we're all victims of the of the recency bias. You, you know what that is? You know, where you tend to think of um, 
that what's going on today is just the way it's always been, the way, the way it's always been. Like we've always had these, like this whole setup we have, this whole podcast setup. I mean, this thing didn't exist back in uh, 2000. Well, it did. I mean, you could do a podcast, but we didn't have all this uh, equipment. We, had, you know, Podbeam wasn't in there. You know, we didn't have this this Motu adapter and these all this technology we're surrounded by from the laptops to the. I mean, do you remember the laptop that you had in uh, 2008 9? I remember mine. It was it was awful, um, and it, it and I didn't I had it. I didn't even have an iPhone. The iPhone was do, launched in 2007. Do wasn't you remember it? how you got the choice to choose the cursor that would show up when your computer was just waiting? Yeah, yeah. And so your computer would ha- had had to take so much time to process things yeah. that you'd like open the internet and you your mouse would go from a mouse to an hourglass. So <laughs> I got another story. You know, so we always talk about technology, but. I, a a very close friend of mine, um, had a stroke and, um, she, she passed out in her bathroom with a stroke. Her friend saw her and, and rushed her. They they called the ambulance. They rushed her to a hospital hospital, literally gave her a medication. This thing has just been, just been formulated, just been invented and patented where, you know, it broke down. They took, gave her this, this, um, medication it broke down the clot in her brain and her brain immediately recovered so far knock on wood no no negative consequences from the stroke these are the kinds of innovations that are happening now and these things are continuing to happen today right. you know so, and, and they're, they're not and stopping innovation doesn't slow down for so, for for the president well well, let's talk. Let's talk about this because let's say let's tie this into the debt conversation because I get a lot of comments on debt, and it can to be honest, it concerns me too. You know, the U.S. Treasury is scheduled to auction off eight point nine trillion dollars this year in new debt. You know, which is roughly twenty six percent of the total outstanding debt. And I I have to say this number out loud because it's ridiculously long. It uh, the total outstanding debt according to the U.S. Department of Treasuries. $34,155,015,629,673 dollars <laughs> A lot of money. All right. But at the same time, you know, our economy is growing by, you know, $23 billion. So right now we are a little hot on the debt. We're about 118% debt to GDP. And our interest expenses, you know, this is the interest the government pays on debt um, is you know, you think, you think your mortgage mortgage interest is bad. Listen to this: eight hundred eighty-two uh, a billion a year is how much in interest our, our government is paying. I think it officially surpassed uh, defense spending as as a line, net interest expense line item on the uh, uh, U.S. Uh, uh, cash outflow statement. But um, so you know, that's about three point seven percent of GDP, which is historically high. It is a big concern. Um, right now, we don't have enough uh, tax revenue to cover the deficit. I think uh, tax revenue right now, which is at an all-time high, coincidentally, is $4.44 trillion. So, you know, it, it isn't sufficient to cover all of the U.S. expenses, uh, you know, because we obviously are deficit spending. But it is not as dire as everyone makes it out to be. I am constantly reading, again, on uh, financial Twitter... <laughs> <laughs> just prognostications that the the dollar is going to fail and it's just a matter of time and we're going to hyperinflate and we're all going to be on a bitcoin standard 
and Bitcoin's going to the moon, and so is gold and all these other alternatives. All right. Now, these things may happen in the future. I can't predict it. But right now, I don't see I don't see it happening. The US dollar is incredibly uh, robust. It is very strong. There's no competitor that I can see. None. Um, you know, to, to compare well, people, people don't really understand the extent of the plumbing in world trade that is yeah. built around the dollar. Exactly. And, and I'm not saying that that can't change, mm-hmm. but the just the the enormity of the task of changing that and getting the whole world operating a different way, it, w- it would take a lot of time. Well, I think people tend to think that our time that we live in is more interesting than it really is. And and as such, they they convince themselves that these catastrophic delineating points in history will happen in their lifetimes. Like the dollar is going to collapse while I'm alive, you know, would be one of those. <laughs> All right. Maybe it does. Probably not. I think what are, what will happen over time is eventually the dollar will, as a fiat currency will fail, just like the, you know, the Roman currency, whatever that was. Yeah, the Ro- Rome failed. was around for about a thousand yeah. years. So if and, you lived for 60, what was your likelihood of being around while they when they failed? Very small. So, and I think the same is true today. And we get caught up in this, these moments. I know people, not personally, but there are people that put all their money into gold or they put all their money into Bitcoin or something like that because they just think this is imminent. Um, and it, it could be, maybe they're right, but it's a gamble. It is still, it is a speculation. Um, so the US dollar is still very strong. It is, you know, the, the, the day I see someone walk over a $100 bill laying on the floor is the day I'm like, uh-oh, <laughs> we're in trouble. We're nowhere close to that. Nowhere close. So anyway, I don't think the dollar is heading for collapse, but the U.S. fiscal situation is somewhat concerning because of two reasons. One is I believe that deficit spending accelerates uh, the gap between the haves and the have-nots. And I also think as such, because of that, it diverts inflation into financial assets, which, you know, those, the haves are the ones that tend to... Meaning the things that inflate are not the toothpaste at the grocery store. It's the house. It's the second home. It's the stock. It's the financial stock assets. You know, you if you look at if you look at P ratios over the past 20 years, they've been inflating, not because companies have been well, obviously, because the P ratio has been going up, so value, so the stock market valuation, what's considered fair valuation, has been going higher and higher and higher. Used to be the average was around you know fifteen. Uh, now the the S and P five hundred uh, P ratio is around it's, it's a little over twenty. And people say, well, it's historically overvalued. It's like, well, those those value what's considered fair valuation has been growing a little bit more because you just see a stronger appetite for stocks and. And it's because you were concentrating more wealth into that top quintile. When somebody that has a billion dollars gets an extra million dollars. They're more likely to put it in the stock market than they are to spend it at the grocery store. Versus if you gave somebody yeah. that doesn't have any money a yeah. million dollars. So so, you're, so this deficit spending is concerning for that reason, where it's it, you are seeing an acceleration of the separation between the middle class and lower class and upper class. Uh, but it also does manifest itself through higher inflation. So I think there is an upper limit as to how much debt the U.S. can actually ac- accumulate before it materially weakens the currency. 
and and encourages a flight to a, an alternative. I think we're pretty far away from that. Um, I don't know what that limit is. It's theoretical. Nobody knows. Um, so I think it will happen slowly over time, though. And then and then there will be a sudden point at the future. Who knows when? Could be a thousand years from now. But but well, that is, that is on the minds of voters right now. And I and I don't think. Um, that really it's going to make a difference in this election. I think the U S fiscal, uh, situation is not going to be, um, it's not a, it's not a big enough problem yet, but, but for this, except one exception, one exception will close on this. And that is the, the tax cuts and jobs act. All right. So that is a big cliffhanger the last year. So let, let me set the stage a little bit Mm -hmm. for the listener. Yes. Okay. So in in when when Trump became president, he made sweeping changes to the tax system. And when those changes were proposed, basically what happens is some actuaries do some math to say, here's what we think this tax change is going to cost. And the tax changes, the way that they were proposed, had no expiration date. They were changes that were made on a permanent basis. And they did there's two arguments to this. There's an expense to taxes, but then of course the other argument is, well, if it increases economic activity, then there could be some offset. But regardless, the way that the projections were done, there was expense to the change. And so if you made the change permanent forever and ever, it was very expensive. And what this meant was that when it came to passing this bill through Congress, he Trump needed more democratic support And he knew he wasn't going to get that support. So the way to fix this was that if you made the tax bill budget neutral, you didn't have to get the same level. You could pass it through reconciliation. You could pass it through reconciliation. Mm -hmm. So basically the way to fix this was they just said, okay, we're going to make the tax changes, but we're going to say that in 2026, they expire. We just revert to the old tax code. Mm -hmm. So things that changed, we have lower tax brackets. We have bigger standard deductions. We have a qualified business income deduction for business owners. My personal favorite is the doubling of the child tax credit. So there's all of these things. Now, there this didn't impact people equally. People, One thing that was really different is there was a cap to how much of your state and local taxes could be deducted. Mm-hmm. So it used to be if you lived in New York and you paid $100,000 of state taxes plus property taxes and so on, you could deduct all of that against your federal taxes. Trump's tax cuts came in and said, no, you're capped at a $10,000 deduction for this. So that was the biggest, maybe that that really did change the tax situation for somebody in like a New York or California versus somebody in a Tennessee uh, in terms of like the amount of state and local taxes they're paying. But the bottom line is whoever wins this presidential election is going to be the presiding president during the sunset of the tax cuts, cuts and jobs, which, which is a big deal, and I think if that president is the current administration, uh, it seems not completely unlikely, but rather unlikely that most of the uh, tax cuts would get extended. My, I, it, it's it's not sensible to pontificate on that and try to predict predict the politics of this. Uh, the, well, the I correct can tell assumption you that is, if Trump is in office, do you think he's going to want to get rid of his own cuts? He, no, he won't. But I, I think if he does, which is, is, I think, unlikely unless we have a re, some sort of recession this year, which doesn't seem to be the case. Um, in the unlikely event that that he does assume office, 
I don't think he's going to have um, a Republican Senate and and House. It'll probably continue to be mixed. Then again, you know, I, this is these are pointless predictions because we don't know. We just don't know what the makeup of our government's going to look like in November. I think the sensible thing to presume is that these tax cuts will expire. And I, and if they do expire, I did the math on this um, based on, you know, IRS return data that came out. It, it, it's going to equal approximately $330 billion in additional taxes on uh, the average taxpayer. And that is, it, that is primarily uh, middle-class uh, not upper income earners. So this is money that's going to be, most of it is going to be pulled directly out of Main Street and directly out of the economy. That is enough to trigger a recession. That, that equates to about a 1.2% reduction in GDP. Now you think, well, that's not enough to trigger a recession on its own. Yes, but you could easily see that, you know, cause contagion, you know? All right. So you're, you, you now have $500 less per month to spend. So not only do you cut back on $500, but you're probably less likely to buy a new home. You're less likely to buy a new car. You're less likely to change jobs. You just, you're going to see a, an, an, an economic grind, grind down for at least a year after to give consumers a chance to reset their, their cash flow statements and their budgets. So I think that the next year to look out for recession is going to be 2026 based on what happens in this election. So yes, you should consider elections when it comes to your portfolio, but long-term, when I'm talking long-term, like 10 years plus, I don't think it matters all that much because let's say you just bought the S&P and you ignored everything I just said, and you just said, okay, we're a recession's coming in 2026 and you did nothing from point to point, you'd probably be better off than if you tried to, you know, time things. Don't you agree? Yeah, I, I yeah. think, again, uh, our job as financial planners isn't to give, you know, lick our fingers, stick it in the wind and say, hey, Mr. Client, I hope I'm right, because if I'm right, your retirement works. But if I'm wrong, it doesn't. Our job really revolves around admitting that you don't know what you don't know. And you certainly don't know the future. It's a very squishy, the, 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 one of the hardest things. And, and I, when I'm teaching my class, you can see this because there are, are some students that are very mathematically oriented and they they want to do analysis. They want they want to have a definitive answer. But the fact is, when it comes to financial planning, you are working with something that is unknowable, and that's the future. And so there is no there's really not an easy way to get to if if any way to get to a definitive answer on certain things. So really, it is one of it, it with a lot of professions, there are right and wrong ways for things to be done in in our profession. It is a little tricky because you don't know the future. So you always have to be anticipating, expecting the unexpected. And you have to build a portfolio that's able to support a base case and also support a number of other scenarios. Yeah, you have you have to pick a sensible allocation and then stick with it. And then you have to engage in what I call uh, benign negligence, benign portfolio negligence. What you just, say the best, the best investment is the one that you can hang on to. Yep. And, and be optimistic. You know, we, we are wired to think negatively uh, about, about the future because we're, we're, we're just, you know, we're like animals scanning the trees for lions. You know, we're, we're looking for the next threat that's going to end our existence, but that's just, 
the reality is that there's a lot more fruit out there than there are predators. Uh, you know, since 2008, for example, you know, we've got cloud computing, tablets, you know, fitness trackers, 3D printing, social media, which I, I argue might be a devil, de evolution. Th- uh, we got lot. large language models, you know, uh, gene editing. There are so many innovations. And to think like, oh, this is all going to grind to a halt, I think is just not, there's no evidence that that is true. So I appreciate everyone listening to uh, Brent and I ramble on and on about this stuff. And we hope that, um, we hope that you go into this election season and and escape it with your sanity and intact portfolios. Uh, Brent, where can uh, where, where can the listeners find more about you? So my website is www.infinitewealthplanning.com. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn and uh, Facebook as well. So anyway, um, thanks for thanks for the conversation. Yes, and I'm Ben Jones, National Wealth Management Group. You can find more about me at uh, on Twitter, it's uh, or X, X.com now, uh, at the carrot stick, carrots, K-A-R-A-T stick. Uh, thank you for listening. Securities offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA, SIPC. Advisory services offered through National Wealth Management Group, LLC, a registered investment advisor and separate entity from LPL Financial, LLC. The opinions voiced in this material are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. All performance referenced is historical and is no guarantee of future results. Economic forecasts set forth may not develop as predicted and there can be no guarantee that strategies promoted will be successful. This information is not intended as authoritative guidance or tax or legal advice. You should consult with your attorney or tax advisor for guidance on your specific situation. Brent Gargano is not affiliated with LPO Financial.